0: You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Joining me on today's program in the second and third segments is returning guest to the program, Mr. Lawrence W. Reed. Many of you probably recognize uh, Larry's name as the Chairman Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, Fee.org is the website. Uh, I certainly am a big fan of their work and would encourage you to check it out. Larry, though, is on the program today for a bit of a different reason. Larry has just released a book with a very, I'll say, provocative and certainly thought-provoking title. The title of the book is, Was Jesus a Socialist? Was Jesus a Socialist? And I had the pleasure of reading Larry's book in its entirety before I interviewed him. And I think you're going to appreciate the perspective that Larry uh, brings to this discussion. And that is, again, in segments two and three of today's program. Well, the Federal Reserve, which is the nation's central bank, is a little more than two weeks into its program of buying private sector corporate bonds and, of course... The Fed, whenever they buy anything, prints the money to do so. They print money digitally, obviously. But the Fed is now not only buying government-backed securities, they are buying private sector corporate bonds as well, and they're printing money to do it. So we are in uncharted territory, economically speaking, and we have extremes, We have private sector debt levels that are at record highs, and we have money printing taking place at levels never before seen. That said, I believe the most important analysis that I can provide to my clients and the listeners on this radio program is the ongoing question of which of these extremes will be the dominant force. In other words... Will we have severe deflation as a result of debt excesses? Or, on the other hand, will there be inflation or even hyperinflation because of massive money printing? And in light of these two extremes, uh, I have a book that was released this past week. I've been talking about it for a couple weeks. The book is titled Revenue Sourcing, The Retirement Planning Strategy for the Post-Pandemic Economy. The book was actually posted on Amazon this past week, and within 24 hours, it was a number one new release in the economics sector, so I'm very grateful and humbled and flattered by all the support. Now, for those of you that would like a copy of the Revenue Sourcing book, we have an official two-hour launch taking place Monday, June 1, from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. And if you go to, the, to Amazon's website and just type in revenue sourcing or if you go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books, that's plural books, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books, there will be instructions there as to how you can get a print copy of the book. If between 5 and 7 p.m. on June 1, you go buy the Kindle version of the book, specially priced during that time frame for 99 cents, and you spend the 99 cents to get the Kindle version of the book, and you email the receipt to us as we outline at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books, we'll send you a signed print copy of the book. So between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. on Monday, June 1, go spend 99 cents on the Kindle version of the book, send us your receipt, and you'll get a signed print copy of the book sent to you. And again, if you'd like more information, visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books. Now, digging back into this deflation-inflation discussion, There's certainly a lot of evidence to support both outcomes, and in an ideal world, if we knew which outcome was going to be the ultimate outcome, it would make planning your investment strategy a whole lot easier. But we don't precisely know what this outcome will be. There is a lot of evidence to support the deflation side of the argument at the moment. Many of you probably saw within the past week and a half or so, Rental car giant Hertz filed for bankruptcy protection and they began to downsize their fleet of automobiles. Well, this is certainly a deflationary force as the company is flooding the already saturated used car market with still more inventory. In fact, according to Market Watch, used car prices fell more than 12% in April from the prior year April. So in other words, from April of 2019, when comparing that month to April of 2020, car prices have fallen, used car prices have fallen 12%. That's a huge decline, and that is obviously deflationary. Bloomberg reported retail landlords are sending out thousands of default notices to their tenants who are unable to pay rent. And many retailers have filed for bankruptcy protection already in 2020 including the Sherman Retail Group, Lucky's Market, Earth Fair, Noah's Event met Venue, Pier One, Art Van Furniture, Modell's Sporting Goods, Food First, uh, True Religion, J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, Stage Stores, Garden Fresh Restaurants, and J.C. Penney. That's all very deflationary. Now, we use these terms a lot without maybe understanding what they actually mean, technically defined. Deflation... Technically and correctly defined is a contraction of the money supply. See, in today's economy, money is loaned into existence. Bankers loan money into existence. That means that money is debt. Well, it takes a little bit of thinking to get your head around that idea. Once you come to grips with the fact that money is debt, it makes perfect sense that when debt levels get too high, and defaults on debt occur, the outcome is deflation. Now, a symptom of deflation is that prices drop. And when prices drop, like the car example that I just shared with you, consumers tend to delay spending. And that's a cycle that feeds on itself. The more prices drop, the more consumers wait to spend money And that has a devastating economic impact on a consumer spending uh, dependent economy like the economy of the United States. Our economy is dependent more than 70% on you and I going out and spending money. And with 30 million plus people now newly unemployed, it's likely these deflationary forces are going to be pretty strong in the near term. Now, the opposite of deflation is inflation, and that's defined as an expansion of the money supply, and the Fed is creating now massive amounts of money out of thin air. And I'll, in the last segment of today's program, I'll share with you exactly how much, and it is nothing short of shocking. And if enough new money is created, then the deflationary forces will likely give, give way to inflation. And that's what the Revenue Sourcing book is all about. If you're just joining us, my new book, Revenue Sourcing, the retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy will uh, officially be launched tomorrow, Monday, June 1, between 5 and 7 p.m. If you go spend 99 cents in that two-hour time frame and buy a Kindle copy of the book and send us your receipt, we'll get you a print copy of the book. To get details, go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books. That is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books. I'll be back after these words with Larry Reed.
1: Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Lawrence W. Reed. Uh, Larry actually has just published a book, Was Jesus a Socialist? It's a topic that we have uh, I think discussed a couple of years ago but the book is terrific I'd encourage you to uh, pick it up. Uh, Larry is also the president emeritus of the Foundas- Foundation for Economic Education. The website is fee.org. I'm a big fan of their work as well. I'd encourage you to check that out. And Larry, welcome back to the program.
2: Hey, thank you Dennis. It's always a pleasure.
1: So, Larry, this is um I think a rather, potentially anyway, controversial topic. And um, the book is opened with several quotes, and in the interest of time, I won't uh, go into all of them. But uh, Lawrence O'Donnell said, to the question of what would Jesus take, the answer is everything, not 35%, not 39.6%, 100%. And there are other quotes echoing the same sentiment. What would your response be?
2: Well, I think these folks, uh, O'Donnell in particular, uh, misread the New Testament, uh, dramatically so. I mean, Jesus never advocated uh, any kind of income tax Uh, to to, uh, suggest that Jesus took positions on things that are uh, economic policy uh, in America today, I think is a bit of a stretch. Uh, But you have lots of Evidence in what Jesus actually said, that he would be very skeptical of the uh, uh, earthly secular state uh, uh, taking everything that productive people earned. I see nothing in the New Testament that suggests he would endorse any kind of uh, socialistic arrangement that would involve uh, the redistribution of income at gunpoint through government. I don't see any suggestion in anything he said uh, that he would be supportive of government ownership of the means of production or central planning of the economy. So the, the idea that he would be in favor of just confiscating all of uh, uh, what you earn is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, he he supported the uh, Eighth and Tenth Commandments very strongly, which warn against both stealing and coveting.
1: So, Larry, in your book, um, you I'm, I'm just going to read from this, uh, in early 2019, a Harris poll showed that half of Americans aged 18 to 39 said they would prefer living in a socialist country, and a 2019 report by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation revealed that more than 70% of millennials said they were likely to vote for a socialist. To what do you attribute this, this movement, especially among younger people, toward socialism?
2: I think it's the, uh, a number of things. The laxity of parents when it comes to uh, watching carefully what uh, their uh, children are being taught in school Uh, more directly. I think it's because the uh, government schools overwhelmingly uh, teach views that are sympathetic to socialism and rarely offer students a a really coherent uh, rebuttal to to that idea. Government never can be trusted, I think, to to teach uh, liberty or character. Uh, to young people and our government system today is uh, is is very um, firm evidence of that um, but also a lot of people judge socialism not by its actual outcome not by what it really is but by the lofty promises that it makes you know oh it's going to help people it's going to take care of them it's going to give you free stuff well that sounds attractive uh, unless you think uh, deeply about where is this stuff going to come from? Who's going to pay for it? Uh, how how will it impact a national debt? And why would anybody want uh, their lives to be dependent upon politicians? But all of that requires a little bit of thought, whereas simply embracing uh, lofty promises doesn't require much thought at all.
1: Well, we're chatting today with Mr. Larry Reed. Uh, his book was "Jesus a Socialist." is terrific reading, and uh, Larry. Uh, why don't you let the listeners know where they could pick the book up and get a copy?
2: Okay. If they go to the website of the organization I'm with, FEE, Foundation for Economic Education, that's feefee.org, scroll down to the bottom of the main page, they'll see a bookstore. Click on that, and then they can buy the book there. Or they can buy it uh, from the major online booksellers like Amazon. Barnes and Noble uh, it may well be uh, ISI books uh, it's, it's not very hard to find uh, on any of those sites.
1: Well, I'd encourage the listeners to do that. Um, I uh, did read the, the book last week in advance of this interview and it's uh, it's terrific so Thank let you. me let me talk a bit, Larry. Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, the most prominent Democratic socialist on the American scene, as you stated in your book, said. Uh, When I talk about democratic socialist, I'm not looking at Venezuela, I'm not looking at Cuba, I'm looking at countries like Denmark and Sweden, and I have to note that uh, I know a little bit about what Mr. Sanders said back in 2010 and 11. and I believe he said that the American dream is more likely to be found in Venezuela, but I think he maybe had to change his tune, given what's happened in Venezuela. (laughs)
2: Oh, yeah. Socialists are always changing their tune. Uh, They will grab on to someplace, somewhere where socialism is in the early stages of implementation, and they say, aha, we'll get it right this time. And then inevitably it flops. And then instead of learning from that and admitting their errors, they move on and say, well, it wasn't really socialism after all. We'll get it right the next time. Uh, In fact, when it comes to the Scandinavian countries that Bernie likes to point to, He's about 40 years out of date. Uh, If if only he understood uh, that in recent decades, those countries have been uh, reducing the role of government in their economy. They tried welfare states. They tried uh, various versions of socialism some years ago, and it tanked their economies. And they've been deregulating, uh, cutting taxes, privatizing, to the point where today uh, they are ranked very high on the index of economic freedom denmark is actually higher number eight in the world in economic freedom uh, just the opposite of, of uh, socialism it's number eight and america is uh, several more pegs uh, down the down the list um, these are not countries in scandinavia that uh, have nationalized industries they have globally competitive privately owned industries uh, there is no national minimum wage in any of the three Scandinavian countries. Uh, and they have more school choice than we do in America. I mean, They are remarkably free. And as I point out in the book, uh, the countries in the world that are socialists uh, uh, in what they practice are not doing very well. The more socialist you are, the more likely you'll be uh, poverty stricken and in the economic doldrums. And if you seem to be somewhat successful, it's usually not because of the socialism you have, but rather because of the capitalism you haven't yet destroyed.
1: Larry, in your book, I was fascinated by this. You had uh, referenced um, the diary of William Bradford, who was uh, the first governor of the Plymouth Colony. Uh, We're talking about the pilgrims here, and I'm not sure this is taught in government schools, but... The pilgrims were initially socialists, and that experiment also failed.
2: Uh, you're exactly right. In fact, by agreement with their sponsors in London, uh, who hoped to make money off the, uh, the colony, the uh, uh, pilgrims were required in the first year or so uh, to practice a kind of socialism. They were going to uh, grow uh, food for the, for the new colony on commonly held land, uh, the produce would go to a common storehouse and then be distributed equally amongst uh, the colonists. But that quickly uh, was a flop. And the reason was, as Governor Bradford noted in his diary, which is no, no secret, you can read it to, to this day, he talks about how uh, under that arrangement, uh, lazy people wouldn't uh, work in the fields because they thought, well, why should I work when I, I get the same as if the, guy, the sucker who does work and so production uh, languished there was less and less to distribute uh, it virtually uh, it came close to wiping out the colony and that's when governor bradford said all right we're going to have to scrap that arrangement we're going to go to private property each of you will be given a certain amount of property to start with you can buy it uh, buy, buy more thereafter if you want you can sell what you have grow on it what you want sell it for the best price you can get and in no time at all uh, they were producing abundance because incentives matter. Incentives really make a difference in how uh, hard people work and how smart they work.
1: Well if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Mr. Larry Reed. He is the author of the book, Was Jesus a Socialist? And it's available in uh, on all the uh, normal sources, or from all the normal sources I should say. Larry, you conclude your first chapter in the book by saying, uh, kind of coming to a uh, general conclusion as to what socialism is, Uh, You said that if it concentrates power in government, so the means of production are either under the ownership or the consequential direction of government officials, it's socialism. And as I read that, I was thinking about, you know, we've got the coronavirus situation. And when you look at the CARES Act and and a lot of the the, the policy response to this uh, situation, it strikes me that we're moving uh, markedly in that direction. What's your take?
2: Yeah, Americans, I think, have got a, a big taste of uh, socialism in this coronavirus uh, pandemic in the sense that government has come in and has uh, uh, closed businesses down, uh, enforced uh, social distancing rules and so forth. It is, is, a, it is a kind of central planning, top-down uh, directives, uh, mandates and what have you, which look very much like uh, a socialist system. Now, time will tell what the full verdict on this is going to be, but it seems to me the uh, rising evidence is uh, suggesting that the lockdowns were not as effective as we first thought, and that, uh, in fact, they may have uh, uh, killed more people than the virus itself. And then to top it all off, you've got so many of these crazy directives coming from government that uh, you have to wonder, where did they come up with this idea? Uh, When governors like Cuomo and uh, uh, others in uh, uh, New Jersey and Minnesota and California, Illinois, have uh, ordered uh, COVID-19 patients into nursing homes uh, where uh, they then spread the disease and and killed thousands of nursing home residents, uh, Americans should look at that and say, "Hmm, you know, when government takes a command uh, over the economy, commanding lead, Uh, you we shouldn't just sit back and say oh it's wise it's smart it will do the right thing Uh, it uh, you know I think in the end we're going to look back on this and say there were a lot of things the government did that were very counterproductive
1: well Larry let's jump in and talk a bit about uh, one of the central topics of the book and uh, uh, in the second chapter of the book you uh, you you relate the three parables that uh, Jesus told and the parable of the talents, I thought, was uh, was very representative of uh, Jesus being anti-socialist.
2: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, in the parable of the talents, he comes to a conclusion that uh, no socialist uh, would ever say or, or ever come to. In The story involves a man who is leaving his estate for a time, and he calls three men together, and he says, look, I'm going to give you guys... Uh, a good portion of uh, what i've got to to safeguard while i'm away and then we'll uh, talk about it when i get back and see what you've done with it and uh, to the one guy he gives a certain amount to the second guy he gives something more and to the third guy more yet so i point out uh, in the book that the distribution uh, from the beginning was not uh, was not equal but the main point comes uh, when the man returns and he calls these three guys together and he says okay what uh, what would you do with my money And the first guy says, uh, you'll be very happy with me. I dug a hole and buried it uh, in the backyard, and I've got precisely what you trusted me with uh, to give back to you. And he's actually criticized in the parable uh, for not uh, having magnified the wealth in any way. The second guy, he says, well, you'll love what I've done. I've doubled or tripled the value. I invested it. And he's praised. And the third guy says, well, you gave me the most in the first place, but I'm happy to tell you uh, the return on the investment I made was even greater than what number two made. Uh, I really magnified it for you. And he's the guy who's praised. And in the parable, Jesus says, uh, after rebuking the first man, we're going to take what that first guy has and didn't magnify, and we're going to give it to the third guy because he knows how to create wealth. Now, that's about as capitalist a conclusion as you can get. Uh, If Jesus were a socialist, uh, he would tell that parable likely in a very different way, probably praising the first guy and criticizing the third guy for his greed. But it was just the opposite.
1: Well, it's a great point, and the clock tells me we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today is Mr. Larry Reed. Uh, The book is Was Jesus a Socialist? And I'll continue my conversation with Larry when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am chatting today with Mr. Lawrence W. Reed. His most recent book is Was Jesus a Socialist? He is the president emeritus of the Foundation Foundation for Economic Education. The website is fe.org. Uh There is a link there uh, for you to order the book. It's also available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, all the typical sources. So, Larry, we're, we're – Chatting about uh, you know Jesus's view on socialism or capitalism, um, but there's going to be somebody out there listening, and you address this in your book as well, saying that well, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible teach that money is the root of all evil?
2: Yeah, you hear that a lot, uh, but it doesn't teach that at all. The actual word or phrase uh, comes from Paul, the Apostle Paul, who says, uh, or who is very critical of the love. Of money now there's a vast difference between money per se and the love of it Uh, Jesus as well as his uh, Apostles taught that uh, you cannot serve two masters and why would anybody by the way ever want money to be their master I mean the whole idea of being a successful entrepreneur in a free market is that you master your own money not the other way around Uh, they were not opposed to money they were uh, the, the Jesus and the Apostles what they were uh, uh, cautioning against was the love of it, the worship of it, uh, the, the uh, uh, putting of money ahead of your love of God, uh, allowing money to corrupt you, which it does in many cases. I mean, how many times have we seen people who uh, come into some uh, quick wealth? Uh, maybe uh, they win the lottery or they, uh, they're they in uh, Hollywood or music or athletics and uh, they get rich quick. And... Uh, you know some some number of them i don't know whether it's a majority or not but it's a substantial minority at the least some number of people who fall into quick and uh, quick wealth uh, can't handle it it corrupts them and they come to worship it and that's what jesus and the apostles are warning against not money itself
1: well and and Larry, there is this movement uh, that that has been building uh, of course you you hear some of the politicians uh pl- playing into this that uh, there, there's attacks on the rich just because they're rich and and they' they're demonized and it's It's interesting, and you point out in the book that you know that they always attack the rich, but they never define the rich:
2: yeah. Yeah, and the reason they don't define the rich is uh, they want to be sure that you don't think you might be in that group because they don't <laughs> em- embrace, <laughs> embrace what it is they want to do. Uh, so they rarely tell you what the, the rich is. In fact, Bernie Sanders himself used to rail against millionaires and billionaires, and then he became a millionaire, and now he uh, is pretty careful not to include millionaires in there. He's just against billionaires now.
1: <laughs>
2: so, is There's a big double standard when it comes to a lot of these people. But, of course, Jesus would say, you don't judge somebody by what they've got uh, in the way of material possessions. Uh, He said, ultimately, people will be judged by what's in their heart, and more particularly, in his case, to whether or not they've accepted him as their savior. But along the way, um, uh, if you accumulate wealth through an an honest endeavor, you're an inventor, let's say, an entrepreneur, a creator of wealth, uh, somebody who's uh, left the world a better place uh, than he found it because he's created something. Uh, You know, Jesus would not say, you didn't build that, and we're going to have to take it from you. Uh, uh, There's nothing in the New Testament that suggests he would ever endorse the compulsory redistribution of wealth uh, through the political process. None whatever.
1: You know, and you mentioned uh, in, in Chapter 4 of the book, Larry, you, you, uh, you mentioned this, and we talked about it a bit in the first segment. Uh, Jesus warned about, uh, you know, to beware of covetousness. And you, you have a Winston Churchill quote in the book that I thought was really, really good. Socialism is a philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy.
2: Yeah, yeah envy is uh, warned against in both Old and New Testaments. Uh, and Jesus, on multiple occasions, uh, points out that envy is uh, a, a terrible sin. It's, it's one of the so-called seven deadly sins, in fact. The idea that somebody has more than you and that uh, you should then allow that to consume you uh, and uh, prompt you to want to uh, even take what the other person has, that's uh, e- extremely uh, criticized in both Old and New Testaments. Uh, I can't think of a corrupting influence uh, that is more destructive, second only maybe to the power, uh, the lust for power. I can't think of an attitude or a motivation that's more destructive uh, than envy. It leads people to uh, count the other guy's blessings instead of uh, your own. It uh, prompts terrible public policies that penalize incentive and the creation of wealth, and it empowers politicians to buy uh, people's votes with other people's money.
1: Larry, you quote in the book, uh, I believe it was Senator Rand Paul, who said, shouldn't we at least worry that if enough income inequality is destroyed, perhaps the next Steve Jobs chooses to devote his time to surfing instead of entrepreneurship? And you also mentioned that, you know, uh, many of the things that you uh, really are, are amazed have developed, like calling a friend from calling a friend in China from your car or using an app on your phone to order coffee or taking a coast to coast flight, all those things really came our way because of self-interest and the profit motive. Could you expand on that?
2: Yeah, the profit motive uh, often comes under attack by socialists, but uh, unfortunately they uh, miss the mark because it's the profit motive as much as anything, more than anything else. I would argue that is what prompts people to take risks To create wealth, to hire people, uh, uh, as opposed to just sitting back and hoping somebody else will do it all for them. Uh, Humankind needs uh, motivation, and uh, beyond just uh, uh, the threat of starvation, we need the kind of motivation that causes people to plan for the long term, to take risks, to to do the uncommon things that result in new inventions and new enterprises. And not everybody can do that, Uh, but if we start penalizing penalizing the people who uh, do know how to do that, then uh, there's going to be less for all of us. That's a a prescription for dividing the pie, uh, a pie that will continue to shrink, as opposed to baking a bigger pie uh, in which everybody then can have a bigger slice.
1: So let's talk, Larry, a bit about taxes, and you address this in your book. Jesus uh, talked about, you know, render unto God what is God's and render what uh, unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And you talk about the fact that that is sometimes maybe taken a bit out of context.
2: Yeah, yeah, quite often uh, that uh, verse will be cited as evidence that Jesus was endorsing whatever government wanted to take from anybody, and no matter what the government wanted to spend it on, as if it's some kind of blanket. Endorsement of uh, of government, but note how clever Jesus's response was. When the Pharisees, who were trying to trick him, uh, said, uh, "Look at this coin. Uh, whose is that? Who should should we pay this uh, tax that Caesar is demanding? Uh, who's who uh, does this coin belong to?" They wanted to catch Jesus in the act of um, uh, civil disobedience through tax evasion. They they were hoping he would say, "Don't give it to Caesar, don't pay your taxes," so they could run to the Romans and say, "You need to arrest him." And his response was, "Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's," which is a very clever way of saying, uh, "I'll leave it to others others to decide who it really belongs to." But if it is Caesar's, well, then give it to him. Uh, But he left it to you to decide whether or not it truly was. So, and even an anarchist. Uh, could accept what jesus said and then argue from there that uh you know in in the case of an anarchist that there should be no government others would say uh uh, he simply left it to the rest of us to decide how big government ought to be he had his mind on other things uh far more important um uh, the hereafter and where your heart and where your soul was for instance
1: Larry, in the book, um, you you talk, uh, I'm just going to read from the book. You said, Jesus knew firsthand that government power can easily be excessive and evil. Shortly after his birth, his family was on the run from authorities. 33 years later, he was killed by a government in cahoots with corrupt religious officials. Uh, I think that's a fact that really uh, maybe uh, a lot of even Christians aren't aware of.
2: Yeah, they really should ponder that, uh, especially if they are prone to suggest that uh, Jesus would endorse whatever the uh, secular authorities want to do or want to take. Uh, He himself was a victim of government. And uh, uh, so I I think the fact that you find nothing in the words of Jesus anywhere in the new Testament that endorses uh, uh, big government or forcible redistribution. He never says uh, raise, raise taxes. You know, he doesn't deal with those things uh, ought to make you pause before you suggest that he was uh, endorsing government uh, in any kind of a blanket way.
1: Well, I think we have time for one more question, Larry. The, the book, again, is Was Jesus a Socialist? Uh, the author is Lawrence W. Reed. We're chatting with Mr. Reed on today's program. And, and, Larry, you say in the book, even if we were all magically made equal in wealth tonight, we'd be unequal in the morning because we're all going to make different choices with our wealth, And I thought that was a really profound point that, you know, maybe the, the, those that lean towards socialism should consider.
2: Yeah, they talk a lot about equality, and certainly when it comes to equality before the law, we should all support that, the idea that the law should be impartial in its application. But the idea that we should be economically equal just runs uh, afoul of basic human nature. We are not the same, one person to another. We are different in terms of uh, uh, our savings. If we were all given the same amount of wealth tonight, uh, that suddenly would be different within hours because some would save it, some would spend it. We're different in terms of our talents and what they can command in the marketplace. We're different in terms of even when we recognize what our best talent is. And we're also different in terms of our willingness to work, to take risks, Uh, To create wealth. Uh, So why should we expect, expect the outcomes of what we do in the marketplace to be the same if people from the word go are not the same? We are different. No two people who have ever lived on this planet have been precisely the same.
1: Well, that's a great place to leave it. Our guest today has been Mr. Larry Reed. His book is Was Jesus a Socialist? Uh, You can go to FEE.org to get a copy or visit Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Larry, always a pleasure to chat with you. Love to have you back down the road. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Hey, thank you, Dennis. I really appreciate it.
1: We'll return after these words.
0: Welcome back to the RLA Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. And thanks again to Mr. Larry Reed for joining us on today's program. You know, the Revenue Sourcing book actually uh, appeared on Amazon last week, and I'm flattered that within 24 hours it was a number one new release in the economics category. And the Revenue Sourcing book has a subtitle of the Retirement Planning Strategy for the Post-Pandemic Economy. And the reason I wrote Revenue Sourcing is that we are facing extremes in monetary policy. We have massive amounts of money being created by the Fed. At the same time, we have huge levels of bankruptcies, which will be deflationary. Now, will the Fed keep printing money? At some point, will all this money printing create inflation or hyperinflation? And well, will the deflation that we're now feeling in many parts of the economy give way inflation or hyperinflation. Well, I think to answer that question, it's important to take a look at how much money the U.S. government is spending. Now listen to this. The Treasury recently announced that it would need to sell $2.99 trillion in new government debt in the third quarter of this fiscal year to finance the programs already passed. So the Treasury, the U.S. government, in the third quarter of this year, needs to find buyers for, let's just say, $3 trillion in new debt. In other words, the government, to finance all the money they're spending, all this stimulus, the existing budget deficit, they've got to find someone to loan the U.S. government $3 trillion. Now, that's in one quarter of this year. Now, to put that into perspective Japan and China together own about 2.2 to 2.3 trillion in U.S. government debt. So the Treasury needs to find a lender for six to seven hundred billion dollars more than the total amount of money the United States owns, China and Japan. Now, this new debt issue. These new debt issues, I should say, of $3 trillion come after new debt of about $1.5 trillion was issued during the first two quarters of the fiscal year. What does that mean? The national debt will increase at least $5 trillion if no additional stimulus packages are passed. I don't need to point out to our savvy listeners that this is an election year and what are the chances there will be no additional stimulus. Now, the Federal Reserve has really been the only buyer of U.S. government debt. Now, where are they getting the money to buy the debt? The same place the Fed always gets money. They print currency digitally. Maybe some of you saw Fed Chair Jerome Powell recently on 60 Minutes, and he admitted that the Fed just creates money digitally. They're just printing money, and there's no limit, according to Mr. Powell, as to the amount of money that they can create. Well, we have reached the point globally that nearly all debt is being financed by newly printed money. The term for that is the debt is being monetized. So the entire world now, for the most part, is embracing Banana Republic monetary policies. Now, as I have stated many times. Moving ahead, I believe there will have to be strong inflationary forces at work because of all this money printing, but there will also be strong deflationary forces due to debt excesses, and it's imperative to be prepared for each outcome. That's what the revenue sourcing book teaches you to do in this post-pandemic economy. I believe, as I said, that short-term, we will see deflationary forces in many parts of the economy. In fact, we're already seeing them. However, at some point, should money printing of this magnitude continue, the deflation, I believe, will have to give way to inflation or hyperinflation. Now, the tipping point for inflation to appear in earnest is when the Fed has pumped so much money into the system that people begin to expect higher prices. That's exactly the opposite of the price expectations for deflation. As I talked about in the first segment of today's program, deflation is a contraction of the money supply and a symptom of deflation is delayed spending by consumers because prices drop. I want to buy a new dining room table, but the prices have been falling, so let me wait. I think they'll go lower. That is a vicious cycle that feeds on itself. Inflation, on the other hand, has exactly the opposite expectation from the standpoint of a consumer. See, when this inflation tipping point is reached and consumers now expect higher prices, their behavior does a 180-degree turn, from their behavior during a deflationary environment. They now begin to spend money faster to avoid paying higher prices for the items that they desire. And this pattern also feeds on itself. This spending pattern has inflation creating more inflation. Now at this point, I'm of the opinion that that we will see deflation in the near term followed by inflation in the long term, unless the Fed changes course, but that seems also highly unlikely at this point under current Fed leadership. And the best way to protect yourself, I believe, is to use the revenue sourcing two bucket approach. And if you're just joining us, let me once again point out that the book, Revenue Sourcing, uh, The Retirement Planning Strategy for the Post-Pandemic Economy is now available on Amazon And if you visit Amazon Monday, June 1, between 5 and 7 p.m. and buy the Kindle version of the book for the special price of 99 cents and send us a copy of your receipt, you'll get an autographed print copy of the book, and we'll get that out in the mail to you right away. So again, if you'd like more information about that, go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com forward slash books, that's books, plural, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, forward slash books. Also at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, you can subscribe to our Portfolio Watch newsletter. That newsletter is free. It is delivered via email every Monday at 5 p.m. We don't send you lots of emails. We don't share your information. We certainly respect our relationship. Uh, If you decide to go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and subscribe to the newsletter, uh, you'll just get that email from us every Monday at five. Also at that website, uh, you can go back and listen to any of these programs in the podcast form. So if you'd like to go back and listen to the conversation that I had with Larry Reed today, you can do so at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Thanks for listening. That's all the time I have for this week. I'll be back again next week.